Okay, I think we can start now. Okay, okay, good. <coughs> so, welcome to uh, Tuesday morning's Dharma talk. And uh, in the morning talks, I really try to talk most on uh, the practice of meditation. And I leave some of the, the insights of Dhammas uh, to talk in the afternoon in the Sutta class. But especially this morning, to make it simple for each one of you to understand what meditation is and how it works. A lot of times that people have these different stages of meditation. And if you read the early books which I wrote on meditation, I did detail those early stages and what happens first, what usually happens second, third, fourth, fifth, and so on. But I found the trouble with that, even though it was valid, that many people are now trying to uh, assess themselves and aspire to see how deep they were going in meditation, whether they're on stage one, stage two, stage three and a half, or whatever. And that became kind of counterproductive to what meditation really is. It's a good way of looking at the stages of meditation, but it kind of confuses the way that meditation works. And I did mention this once before, the first night, I think, that one of the teachers which Ajahn Chah taught me, and he said, we meditate not to attain anything, but to let go of things. And that was a wonderful little teaching because it reminded me that what we're actually doing in meditation is a letting go, a renouncing, a simplifying. And the idea of attainment was actually adding things onto your repertoire of things which you've seen and done and pointing out to yourself the things you hadn't achieved yet and having goals which you had to fulfill. It's like Sometimes people say these days, it's something which arose after I became a monk. People have bucket lists. And I can understand, what do you mean a bucket list? Apparently a bucket list of things which you have to do before you die. <laughs> I think that's totally ridiculous. But nevertheless, people have these bucket lists, I have to go here, I have to do that. I have to do a retreat with Ajahn Brahm, I have to get enlightened. I, it keeps going on and on in your bucket list. There's no buckets in this world big enough for all the things you can put on that list. And I think that's where we get the phrase to kick the bucket, and get rid of that, and just see what happens. To have almost like the aspiration to have no desires, to be free. And a little bit of Dhamma which made that very clear to me. I already mentioned to you, I talked quite a lot last night about visiting jails and prisons. And there was, you know, when I started getting more busy, I let other monks share that privilege of teaching in prisons. And one of these monks went to a new high security prison here in Perth. And he was a very lovely monk, and after a short while, the prisoners got very friendly with him. 
And so they invited him, can you please stay an extra half an hour? Because we've arranged some tea and some cheese for you and chocolate. So the monk accepted. And so they had a more informal meeting with him. And that's when he told me, they started asking the question, what's it like being a Buddhist monk here in Australia? Because they had no idea of the lifestyle of a Buddhist monk. So he began by telling them, well, we get up at four o'clock in the morning. And just at that, four o'clock in the morning, well, even murderers don't have to get up that time. <laughs> and the monk did add, it's optional. You can always get up earlier if you want to, <laughs> but not later. <laughs> okay, they said it's a monastery, but then he asked, what do you do at four o'clock in the morning? Can you turn on the TV, catch the morning news or the late night movie? No, we don't have TVs in monastery. I'll never forget this guy came to the monastery and he had a big widescreen TV. He said, I come to offer this to your monastery. What for? I said, you, you haven't got one. I said, yeah, we don't want one. I said, why did you buy it? And this was a guy. He said, well, it was on sale. <laughs> And he just brought it because it was a good deal. But once he brought it, he didn't know what to do with it. So he tried to get rid of it with the monks. So no, we don't watch TV. So, what do you do in the morning? What do you think we do? We meditate, chant, until breakfast time. So you see the breakfast. Breakfast I have over here are just amazing. But in the old days, we used to have a couple of Weetabix, with some milk and a cup of tea. That was my breakfast every morning. And the prisoners said, wow, that's all you have? Because in prison, I've seen this, they have a huge smorgasbord of choice. You know, if you're an Asian prisoner, you can have uh, noodles, you can have porridge, uh, Thai or, or they can have mama noodles. You know mama? Okay. Sorry? Mami. No. okay. In Thai it's mama. <laughs> and you can have bread, you can have uh, bacon and toast, and you can have whatever you like. And then, wow, it's, it's really awful in your monastery, that's all you can take. He said, yeah. So what do you do after breakfast? And that's why you see the monks have to work. Even right now, the monks will be preparing for the katina ceremony. You may see some of them over here today, just doing some of the work. I'm not quite sure if they're coming over here or just doing it in Bodhinyana to start off with, but to make sure that we finish everything. And at this point, I always love telling this story, that this monastery, Jhana Grove, I think it's 14 years now, 13 years? 14 years now. And it was opened on Good Friday 14 years ago. And when it was opened, 
you know, I was organizing all the building work. I was in control of that. I just want to make sure it was done to a really good standard. And the afternoon before, the people doing the flooring here hadn't finished. And when the, the boss, the contractor, was supposed to be organizing this, it was a, a Buddhist from Hong Kong, and she tried to get the workers to work a little bit longer. Said, so, no, we can't, this is Australia. This is a long weekend. We're going home, bye-bye. And she couldn't get anybody else to finish this flooring here. And we're having the, the opening ceremony the following morning on a Friday, it's a public holiday here, and followed by a retreat, fully booked. We didn't have any floor. And we were having the Premier of Western Australia come to do the opening. Now he's still the patron of this uh, Jhana Grove Retreat Centre. That was actually another story, very sad. Because, you know, he, he did get some depression, but I always, already knew him before then. And he was very open to Buddhism. And it's just a Premier of Western Australia. That's not an important position in the world. But he was a best friend of the British Prime Minister of the time, Tony Blair. He'd actually attended, I think it was actually the best man, at Tony Blair and Cherry, Cherry Blair, I think, at their wedding. And of course, at that time, the British Prime Minister was a really good friend of Mr. Bush over in Washington. So I had it all planned out. First of all, you know, you work with Tony, uh, with Jeff Gallup, first of all, the premier here. He was very close to being a Buddhist. And once I had him, then I could go and convert Tony Blair. <laughs> and once I got Tony Blair, I'd have free access to George Bush. And he could save the world. <laughs> that stupid monk fantasy. <laughs> anyway, he's still a friend, Jeff Gallup. George Bush, no. Tony Blair, no. But Jeff Gallup, yes. <laughs> so anyway, uh, so what do you do after breakfast? Yeah, we work. And anyway, this particular floor here, only this side was a big gap of concrete. No floorboards in yet. And so, what happens when we're in such a dire situation the following morning We've got the Premier of Western Australia and all these other dignitaries coming. What we do? The reserve forces. The monks. <laughs> I don't know if you see this in Singapore, but the monks here, we work. Build. And in particular, all praise to Ajahn Bamali and Ajahn Santuti. They're the ones who led the laying of this floor in the middle of the night, working from, I don't know, seven o'clock in the evening over until about two, three o'clock in the morning. This is monk laid. <laughs> and they did a really good job. And they had about one or two hours of sleep, then we had our big ceremony. And I was really proud of those monks. That's actually how we work. Something needs to be done, you just do it. And the prisoners in jail said, oh, they'll never get us to do something like that. If they tried that, we'll riot. <laughs> so, 
say, well, what do you do after you work? Yeah, we have our lunch. And you've seen the monk's lunch, you've gone over there to enjoy it yourself. It looks very nice. There's much choice. In the old days there wasn't that much choice, but just the same, it all go in the one bowl. And that's a difficulty. Because sometimes you get, and I've had this, I had some spaghetti bolognese and somebody put some ice cream on it. Strawberry ice cream on spaghetti. Have you ever had that? I don't recommend it. <laughs> it was disgusting. I think I would prefer um, sticky rice with a frog on top to that. And even the prisoners were really amazed. They said, look, in jail, even in solitary confinement, they give you a little tray. You know, your main course is here and the uh, sweets or whatever is, is in another little depression on the tray. That's disgusting in your monastery. But I always remember also that one of the first times I went to Singapore, now Angie Monksfield, you know Angie, she was married to this Westerner this Englishman. So she knew how to cook English food. And out of compassion for me, she said, come to my house, I'll give you an English lunch. And she spent hours making that lunch for me. But it all went in the bowl. And she said, you can't put it all in the bowl. I said, yes, I can. And with the sweet on top. She, was dis she never made me English lunch ever again. <laughs> I was too ascetic. <laughs> anyway, what do you do after lunch? You know, can you play sport? I already mentioned that to you, that um, Buddhists cannot play sport. Buddhist football team. Thailand has got a big population. Do you ever see them winning World Cups or anything in, in footballs, in soccer? Never. You know why? They're compassionate. The last thing you want to do is cause other people to suffer by beating them. <laughs> so I say, if you're about, you've got an open goal, you're going to kick it, please miss. <laughs> if you want to score a goal, score an own goal so the other team are happy. <laughs> and if you got the ball, what should you do? Let go. <laughs> So what about your dinner, they asked. What do you have for dinner? You don't have dinner, I don't have dinner. We don't have dinner as Buddhist monks. I said, oh, that's a bit rough. So well, what do you do in the evening? Can you say play cards? Have games? And there was a story about that, about this monk in the early days, decided he needed, you know, coming to a new city, he needed to make contact, you know, with other religions, you know, to be able to show some harmony and friendship. So they started meeting just for lunch or for afternoon tea. That was a bit difficult because the monk couldn't eat anything in the afternoon. So that one of them decided, well, let's just, you know, to meet together just for friendship. You know, we have a cup of tea or a cup of coffee and you know, we can just play a simple card game. And one thing led to another, and then they started playing poker. 
to make it interesting, just for a few coins. And it got, it's just one thing led to another, and soon they were gambling. When they were gambling, that was against the law. Someone told the police they were arrested and had to face trial. And as they were facing trial, it was the Buddhist monk, Jewish rabbi, and Christian priests, the three of them, <laughs> on trial for gambling. And the judge took one look at them and said, look, you're all three holy men, so I'm just going to ask you. First of all, the, uh, the priest, were you gambling? And quick as a flash, the judge could hardly see it. He looked up and said, Jesus, forgive me, and then said no. <laughs> okay, you can go home. And then the rabbi, were you gambling? He put his hands behind his back and crossed his fingers. I was told to do that when I was a young kid at school. If you want to tell a lie, cross your fingers and it doesn't count. Did you do that in Singapore? Lucky, <laughs> because it does count. Anyway, he crossed his fingers behind his back and said, no, okay, you can go. Then left with the Buddhist monk. He said, where are you? Now put your hands in front of you. I think the judge was uh, sussing them all out. Now put your hands in front of you. Venerable sir, where are you gambling? And of course the monk could sort of look up to the sky and say, Buddha, forgive me. You don't do that in Buddhism. And he said... With whom, Your Honour? <laughs> so he went home too. <laughs> and the moral of that story is, if you're being questioned, always be the last. <laughs> you could usually get off the hook. <laughs> no, we don't sort of gamble or play cards. So what do you do in the evening? Meditate. And quite honestly, to... When this monk told me this story, you know, they did ask him, don't you get tired of meditating? Monks have to be honest. So he said, yeah, sometimes. <laughs> but he keeps on doing it. And they said, what time do you go to bed? Bed? We don't have beds. You, many of you have seen my cave. Did you see the bed? There's a little mattress on the floor. We don't sleep on beds. I do over here, but uh, or you go to Singapore and you go to a uh, Buddhist fellowship or you go into a hotel or somewhere, they have beds there. You know, Buddhist oh. fellowship is also mentioned. Ah, excellent. Oh yeah, it is, that's right, yeah, it's great. But once I remember doing that, it was in some big conference in a big hotel, and they put me, actually, these are all lovely stories, that there's a, a Thai lady noon and she's organizes everything for me when I go to Thailand she came to see me in uh, Phuket the last retreat with her partner you know she's a lovely girl but you know she was high-class family and so the husband she has now when he first proposed to her her mother sort of refused said no it's not good enough for you and so I taught her mother into letting her marry Pup. Pop, his name is, sorry. Uh, Pup, sorry, yeah. And when, after they married, it was their 10th wedding anniversary when I was in Phuket. So I wanted to come out, down and just say thank you. Thank you for talking Noon's mum into letting her marry him. And they have a wonderful relationship.
But the first marriage she had was with some big rich fellow and it was a terrible marriage that didn't get on at all and it eventually fell apart. But when I was giving this big talk in a conference in Bangkok once, they put me up in this hotel in this magnificent, not a room, it was like a suite, and three or four rooms in there. So Noon came to see me there with her family and when she found out where I was staying, <laughs> she was devastated. She had to come in to visit me with her mum and her uh, new partner. He said, this was my honeymoon suite when I got married. <laughs> and I got so many bad memories of this place. And now Ajahn Brahm, you're staying in here. Ah. <laughs> I live an interesting life. But anyway, we sleep on the floor, we don't have beds. Oh, even in uh, solitary confinement in jail you have beds. So anyway, to cut the story short, the prisoners were just so amazed at how ascetic it is in Bodhinyana Monastery compared to a top security prison in Australia. And they liked the monk. So you know what they said? They said to this monk, that's terrible in your monastery. Why don't you come in here and stay with us instead? <laughs> And they had a point. Jails in Australia can be more comfortable than staying in Bodhinyana Monastery. Do you accept that, Ryan, uh, Anagarika? Have you ever been in jail? <laughs> Good. <laughs> Honestly, you get better food in jail. More choice. <laughs> and you can get... Watch the TV, you can play sport. <laughs> so, when he said that, we all laughed, but then I kind of wondered, what is a jail? What is a monastery? Why do you come in here where there's no TV, no entertainment ex in except my silly jokes? Why do you do this? And some people from Sydney, they say, where did you go on the weekend? I went to a retreat centre. Really, what do you do there? Just sit on my backside all day, getting a sore bottom, a bad back, <laughs> only eating in the morning. They didn't feed you in the afternoon? No. And I also had to do the chores as well. <coughs> what other holiday do you have to do the washing up? <laughs> so they say you were crazy going on a retreat like this. But then, some of you get so much peace and happiness. This one lady sent me a, an email when she got back to work. Her boss said, what drug is Ajahn Brahm giving you in Jardagram? I don't care what it is, just make sure you bring me back some next time. Because <laughs> he was so much happier and relaxed. It actually works. So anyway, so the difference between a monastery, a retreat centre and a prison, what is it? Here, I brainwashing you into 
wanting to be here. And in prison, no matter how comfortable, people don't want to be there. That's the difference. Any place you don't want to be is a prison for you. It doesn't matter what it is, how it is, but if you want to be here, find meaning in what you're doing right now, then you find this immense freedom. It's the wanting of the walls of the prison. When you let go of wanting, then you're free. So anyway, that, that is you know, where you learn some amazing wisdom when you're meditating. Every time you're meditating, do you want to be here? You just want to get it over so you can go for lunch. Or go, when you're listening to these Q&A in the evening, do you want to be here? Or you're thinking, when's he going to stop? <laughs> I want to go to bed. I'm too tired. If you want to be somewhere else, you're in prison. Now it even gets to the point when you're sick, when you're dying. Do you want to be here? Or would you rather be somewhere else? Every time you want to be somewhere else, you put some stress on your body and mind. If you can be content with this process, which we all have to go through sooner or later, make peace with where you are. This is the only moment you have. Be kind to it, make it important. It's amazing just how you can grow from that. And I'm not just saying this as theory. When I first was in Thailand, I'm a pretty healthy monk these days, because I was um, sneezing a bit this morning. That's hay fever. I knew a few other of you have hay fever. This is the, the peak time of the year for hay fever. If you go down to the plains, you'll see the farmers are making their hay. And, uh, uh, do you need some claritine, some antihistamine? I have. I have, yeah. I find that works really well for me. So anyway, uh, you can take antihistamines. That's not breaking the fifth precept, taking drugs. <laughs> it's medicinal. But anyhow, that uh, when you are happy to be here, that's what yeah, I was going to say, was many years ago as a young monk, especially living in Thailand, the biggest problem with your health was all the food you ate. You know, that sticky rice and frog. And that's not really healthy, but I had a strong constitution, thank goodness. But not all the time. You'd often get diarrhea. But I remember this one time, it was, um, it was like a fever. No one knew actually what it was. All the Western monks got this fever. And it was, we found out it was scrub typhus. Symptoms just like typhoid. And the doctors didn't know what it was because according to the, the Thai health uh, department, there was no scrub typhus in northeast Thailand. 
The reason why they never detected any, because all the locals had immunity. It was only when the Western monks went in there for the first time, we all caught that. You know, you slept on the ground, you know, it was like Tutanga, Tudong monks, uh, and the little mite would bite you, and you could hardly see just the bite, and they would uh, transfer scrub typhus to you. So I had scrub typhus in Ubon Hospital. Now, the hospital in those days was nothing like any hospital you have in Singapore or Australia. Those were really, it was a third world country at the time, in those early years, and the northeast was the, you know, where the, uh, the hillbillies lived. So hardly had any resources there. They did have a monk ward, but they didn't really do many tests. They put you in the bed, and in the evening, in the evening about six o'clock, there was a night nurse, there was a nurse on the a little table at the uh, front of the ward. He disappeared. And no replacement nurse came back. And I got worried. And I said, shouldn't we tell somebody the night nurse hasn't turned up? And that's when the monk in the next bed said to me, what are you talking about? There is no night nurse. For 12 hours or more than that, every day, you were left alone in this ward. What if it's an emergency? That's just unlucky karma. That's not very reassuring for a young monk. <laughs> so anyhow, so you waited in the morning, but I didn't like waiting for the morning to come because they didn't know what I had. So they used to give a cocktail of antibiotics twice a day. And this nurse would come in the morning with my injection. Now, everybody would think that Thai nurses are like petite, slim, attractive. Not this one. <laughs> this one was built like a weightlifter. She looked more like a water buffalo than a woman. <laughs> really strong. No messing around. So I had to go on my back, expose my backside, bang. Because those needles were all recycled in those days. Remember those recycled needles? that had to boil them up first of all to try and um, sterilize them. And they were blunt. Whack. Stab it in. But I was a monk, so I endured. Maybe the first two, but after that, it really started to hurt. <laughs> and I hated that nun, I must admit. I wasn't enlightened then, so, ooh. And your butt got so sore. But anyway, about three or four weeks I was in that hospital. And because you had a fever all that time, they didn't know what it was because the experts say there was no scrub typhus there, because they didn't know what it was. He got more and more weak. I think it was only about 24 years of age at the time, but still, I lost all my energy. It was hard to even go to the toilet. You had to uh, go to the next bed in the ward, just 
lean over and then just fall onto it and then to the next one and the next one till you get to the toilet. And you only go there once a day because there was just too much energy expended. Probably the closest I've been to dying. But there comes a time, you know, when I kind of thought, you know, why not meditate? So you can't meditate when you're so weak and you've got a fever. But I thought, why not? So that's when I did meditate in the bed with a fever, scrub typhus, with hardly any energy at all. I'd been done all the sleeping, wasted time trying to sleep again. You know what it's like, you know, you've been really sick and you're not tired, you're just exhausted and in pain. And then I just decided to meditate and it was surprising. I never expected to meditate so easily and go so deep. It was so beautiful. You know, sometimes you always say that meditation can be so ecstatic. This was almost like super ecstatic because of what went beforehand. You know, really sick. Had a wonderful time. But for interest, and one of the reasons I like telling this story, my posture. I know many people say, you've got to have your right leg over your left leg, right hand over the left hand, thumb slightly touching, straight back, chin down, closed eyes. Many people say your posture is important. And I looked at my posture after this lovely meditation, one leg that way, another leg that way, an arm over here. And You've seen people in the hospital who have been really sick. Their posture is all over the place, like mine was. So that a wonderful meditation. And it sort of taught me a wonderful lesson, which I'm sharing with you. Your posture is not important. As long as you're comfortable, as comfortable as you can be. But even if you're in pain, even if you're exhausted, even if you've got a fever, you can still get into lovely meditations. It's just a little bit more difficult, that's all. But I was desperate. So anyhow, that's with um, monasteries. It doesn't really matter where you sit. As long as you want to be here, you may have a fever, but want to be with a fever. You may be in pain, don't try and get rid of it. You may be exhausted, don't try and want more energy. If you want something more, there's no way that meditation can work. It's a wanting which causes you to feel like you're in a prison. And you're trying all the time to escape instead of learning how to be here. But that's not what I intended to talk about, like usual. <laughs> when I said we've got all these diff different stages of meditation, these are not for you to aspire to. It just tells you what happens on the journey. They're like landmarks. Like you have a map and you actually know what's happening. You don't say, you know, if you're looking out the window of the plane when you're traveling somewhere on a clear day like it often is in Australia, you can actually see the coastline as you go up north. You can see going past Monkey Mere and past Derby and you can see the coastline of Australia disappearing before you go into the coastline of uh, Indonesia. You can see that from there, but you don't say, oh, now let's go to Indonesia. 
You don't say, oh, now let's go to Singapore, oh, now let's go to Malaysia, now let's go to Thailand or wherever. These are just landmarks on the journey. And that's why I teach these different stages of meditation. Not for you to aspire towards, but just to know what happens on the journey of meditation. And that's why years ago, and this was supposed to be the topic of the talk today, years ago I gave the simile, because it's very helpful, of the thousand petal lotus. That simile of the thousand petal lotus, thousand petal lotus is a, is a Vajrayana simile. And you know it very well. Om Mani Padme Hum. Like hail or worship Mani Padme, the jewel in the heart of the lotus. That's Padme, in the lotus. But no one ever told me what that meant. So now we explain what it means. The jewel in you. You're the lotus. But a lotus is closed up at night time. And if you examine a closed up lotus, an ordinary lotus in the pond, you examine it and you see its outermost petals are just hard, thick, and actually corrugated to give it some strength and protection from the elements. And no one would ever expect in the middle of that closed up lotus, if you've never seen one before, inside could be this beautiful petals, fragrance uh, of this lotus inside. It's all closed up. And this is the first part of that simile. Sometimes I look at each one of you and I think, crikey, there's no hope. That's what I used to think in the old days. But then you see inside the, the most unlikely of uh, lotuses, the outer sheaf is really not promising. When it starts to open up, wow, this is beautiful fragrant petals inside. Each one of you. And the best example of that, which I haven't been able to find a better story to explain this, was this Australian man came here many years ago and I was just hanging around the reception area when he was checking in. And I took one look at him. He was wearing what we call traditional Australian dress. Thongs, shorts and t-shirt. And that's it. <laughs> that's national Australian dress. <laughs> what many Australians wear in the hot weather. You know, the, th the thongs, the flip-flops, shorts, and just an old t-shirt. So I could see a lot of his tattoos, covered in tattoos. And straight away, you know, I shouldn't do this, but I admit my faults, I uh, judged him. And I actually said to him, Sir, this is a Buddhist retreat centre. Carnet Prison Farm is up the road. <laughs> That's what he looked like, like he belonged in, in the prison farm going to visit some of his friends or something. But he said, no, I'm on the retreat. I'd never seen him before. But he was on, he listed on the retreat. Fair enough, okay. The most unexpected meditator I've ever seen. And when he comes for his interviews, wow. 
he really blew my mind. He described it was real. And the jhanas, a couple of them. And after the retreat, he disappeared. But we, I checked up on him. He is over in, um, I think, Sydney somewhere. Somebody found him. He heard my talks. He said this was the most important experience of his spiritual life, coming here for that retreat. He just blissed out and it changed his life. But I knew that what he said, I can't judge anybody. I don't know who is going to just press that letting go button and get into these deep, amazing, blissful states. But in that retreat, that was him. So, when I say that, does that create desire in you and wanting? If it does, you put yourself in a prison again. You'll never be free. I think it was because he didn't know what to expect. He didn't have any expectations because he didn't know what he was doing. We just did it. But anyway, the thousand petal lotus. That outermost sheath of the lotus, it opens up. Why? Because of the warmth and the light from the sun, when the sun comes up in the morning. And I always uh, emphasize the warmth as well as the light of the sun. The kindness and the mindfulness. Kindfulness is not just a catchphrase, this means a lot. If you're just mindful, we don't have any warmth of what you're watching, you won't be able to keep your attention there. It's the kindness keeps your attention there. So anyway, the warmth and kindness of the sun and the outermost petals of the lotus open, allowing the warmth and light of the sun to actually shine on the next layer of petals. So they open up, allowing the warmth and light of the sun to shine on the next layer of petals, so they open up. And the deeper you go into the lotus, the more beautiful, the more fragrant, the more profound are those lotus petals. And that's exactly how meditation works. And I tell this simile because too often people aspire, they want the deeper layers of petals. So it's almost psychological craving starts to come up. Instead of waiting for the lotus petal to open, you start peeling it. <laughs> What's the fast way? And that just ruins everything. So your job, what you do in meditation, is just to be mindful and to be kind. Whatever you're aware of right now, be aware of it, be kind to it, that's all. I'd always say be patient as well. Wait for the lotus to open up. Don't get distracted, don't get bored, don't think it's not opening up. Every time you disturb the process, that's where you uh, elongate it. It takes longer. If you want something more, you're in a prison. So when you do that, the lotus opens up all by itself. You don't do anything. You're just aware and kind. And as you're aware and kind, it's two amazing things. 
the lotus opens up stage by stage. First of all, I say you're aware of your body in meditation. And as you're aware of your body, the body relaxes. And then you kind of, the body opens up. I don't mean literally, I mean you go inside the body, to your breath. Or if not to the breath, up into your, your mind, your awareness. And one of the first things you notice that you're in this uh, layer of petals called time, with the past, the present and the future. But you learn how to just be kind, be aware. It's like you go in the middle of time. You know, that petals of time, they open up. And what you see inside is what we call now. And as you go inside this lotus, all more beautiful layers of petals. When you go into the present moment, that's pretty gorgeous. But as you're in the present moment, the next layer of petals is actually silence. Silence lives in the center of now. And as you go into that center of now, into the silence, it happens naturally. You don't do anything. You don't try and suppress, you know, past and future or suppress um, uh, all those thoughts and words. It just becomes a natural state of peace for you, going inside. The lotus is opening up. It's not what you do, it's just a stage on the journey. And once you do this a few times, honestly, silence and present moment are so gorgeous. I don't know why anybody would not want to uh, stay as much as they can in the silence and in the present moment. You've actually become free of time and free of all this noise you know, between your ears. And then once you do that, it's strange, but usually the next layer of petals for most people, weird to say this, but it's what's true, my own experience and also the experience of many people I've taught over the years, you become aware of your breath. It took me a while to understand why is it that the most common meditation object, you know, or the object of meditation, not actually how you meditate, how you meditate with kindness and mindfulness. Now, why the breath? Until years ago, when I first came to Perth, I got an invitation from a person who had the first uh, sensory deprivation chamber. And this little, uh, you might call it like a box. And it was filled with water, salty water, at your body density, body temperature. So you went in some bathers and you floated in that water. So you had no aches or pains on your back or your butt or anywhere. Your body was just floating this warm water, body temperature. So it was just so relaxing, not having any physical discomfort. And it was, uh, had a lid to it, so it was closed. You couldn't see anything. It was soundproof. You couldn't hear anything. You couldn't smell anything. You didn't have any physical, the five senses were suppressed. 
And I was invited to go in one of these sensory deprivation chambers, but there was another monk who was senior to me. He got into them first. And I was supposed to go the next day. I never got to go in it. And the reason why was in the morning newspaper, there was a big advertisement for this sensory deprivation chamber, as used by Buddhist monks. <laughs> they exploited us in order, to, in order to get more people to go in it. And I said, well, we've already been exploited. Don't lose anything. Can I go, please, please, please? No. <laughs> so I never got to go in it. But anyway, he told me what it was like going in the sensory deprivation chamber. Yeah, your body was really comfortable. You didn't feel cold. You didn't feel hot. You didn't need blankets or air conditioner or fans. Oh, and no aches or pains anywhere. And you could float like that for hours. And it was soundproof. Except... <laughs> just the ordinary breath you know when there's nothing else to pay attention to got really loud you got emphasized when there's nothing else to, to watch and for apparently these days many times that people they, they can float in that but they have to have some little movie on it improve your golf or other sort of stuff there, because they don't know what to do with silence. But nevertheless, it has taught me just the importance of, you start watching your breath, it comes to you, because it's the last thing which is moving. Everything else has calmed down in your meditation, but you're still breathing. Which is one of the reasons why, when you get to the layer of petals called breath, Excellent. This is how the Buddha meditated. What do you do next? Mindfulness and kindness. No more. When you're aware of this breath and are kind to it, the breath actually becomes very soft, very smooth and very refined. You don't need to breathe very much. And the reason is because you don't need much breath. Your body is relaxed. You're not thinking your metabolism goes down. Do any of you like mosquitoes? No, I don't either. But when I was in Thailand, you had to sit out in the jungle in the evening with Ajahn Chah. And that was torture. So many mosquitoes would bite you. Fortunately, there was no dengue at that time. <laughs> but there was malaria. But it was just the irritation of those mosquitoes. And then, I remember just, you know, so even early days, decided there was no mosquito repellent or anything you could do to protect yourself. So you just meditated. Meditated nice and deeply. And I found when you get into some nice deep meditations, mosquitoes don't bite you. There's a Western, you can find out the mosquitoes that have bit you or not, because you see the bumps, you know, and the itchy bumps which you had on your skin afterwards. And also, just like now, you see how much skin I've got exposed? Always had his bare arms and heads shaven. I used to say we had more seats at the dinner table than lay people have. <laughs> so we had lots of mosquitoes on you. But then, I remember just going into some nice meditations, really deep, and afterwards, you look to your arm, there's no bumps there at all. The mosquitoes didn't bite you. And I always thought, 
That's the magic of meditation. Just like those monks, you could be uh, cremated and you don't burn, you know, in a deep meditation. It's another magic shield of meditation. The mosquitoes don't bite you. And of course, it was just a, just science. Mosquitoes are attracted to the carbon dioxide coming out of your skin, mostly. When your metabolism goes down, when you don't worry about them so much, you become invisible to them. They literally can't find you. They don't know you're there. And I can prove that many times. It's a wonderful thing to learn. So you can meditate in this mosquito-ridden jungle, get really deep, and mosquitoes leave you alone. They can't find you. So anyway, that's my experience. So anyway, you, the breath gets more and more refined because your metabolism goes down. You don't need so much fuel. You don't need so much oxygen. So you're sitting there, and just the breath gets so refined. As it gets more refined, it's an important part of the meditation, which is there in the books, how the Buddha taught, but many people are afraid of it because they think, especially if you're a monk or a nun, you should be ascetic. If you're smiling, it means you're not practicing, you're indulging. Wipe that smile off your face, monk. You're not serious. You know, this is something which happened, experiences which occurred. Before I became a monk, I used to go to this Thai temple, Wat Buddha Padipa, in uh, West London. I go there regularly, and I told some of the other people that I'm going to now go to Thailand to ordain as a Buddhist monk. And then one year later, I saw some of these again, some of these uh, Western disciples, and... They said, you're still a monk? I said, yeah. And they said, I told you, I'm serious about this. And they said to me, we didn't think you were serious. I asked them, why? They said, because you were too happy. Even as a lay person, I've been meditating a while. And that kind of shook me and shocked me. You don't go to become a monk or a nun. You don't come on a retreat because you're miserable. Even when you're happy, you come on a retreat to get happier. <laughs> the whole idea about spiritual life, you have to be miserable. That turned me off. I'm sure that will turn you off as well. If your teacher doesn't smile, give him up or her up. Ajahn Chah was one of the happiest men I ever saw. So the happiness, I wasn't afraid of happiness in meditation. I wasn't afraid of smiling. And that was an important point. You get to this stage of meditation where you start to get some bliss coming up. The breath becomes delightful. I used to call it beautiful. These days call it delightful. And that's good. Enjoy. You deserve it. Don't think you're enjoying it. It must be bad for you. You'll get attached. You're in trouble. You're enjoying it. Never think like that. Even the Buddha said that. Don't be afraid of the happiness which comes from meditation. Those type of happinesses and joys and pleasures and blisses and ecstasies. He said, don't be afraid because they can lead only to one of four things. You know what those four things are? The four stages of enlightenment. 
If you start to bliss out in meditation, that's where they lead to. Stream winning, once returning, non-returning, full enlightenment. That's what we're supposed to be doing. So when you start to have happiness and joy in your meditation, well done, carry on. You're, in, you're on the, the, the right stages. And after a while, the joy of the meditation gets really strong. You're watching your delightful breath, and in short, just the breath kind of vanishes, the delight takes over. Now, it's hard finding similes. The simile I used a long time ago is the simile of Lewis Carroll's The Cheshire Cat. When, I think in Alice in Wonderland, or through the looking glass, I can't remember which, but then this cat kept appearing and then disappearing, and Alice said to the cat, it said, it's really um, disturbing, you appearing disappearing so quickly. So the cat said, okay, I will disappear slowly. So the cat disappeared part by part, and his ears disappeared, his eyes disappeared, his fur disappeared, leaving only the smiling mouth, and then the mouth disappeared, leaving only the smile. It's beautiful English, because how can you have a smile without a mouth to do the smiling? Wonderful English, but that was so, so similar to what happens in meditation. You have the delightful breath, and the breath disappears, leaving only the delight. And this is what Alice said, it gets curiouser and curiouser. I've often seen a cat without a smile. This is the first time I've seen a smile without a cat. I love that type of English. But it also just happens by chance to be so similar to what happens in meditation. So you just got the smile. The smile is actually comes from some mind object. This is where the body has disappeared. Because the breath isn't delightful, it's just the mind is interpreting it as delightful. And the delight takes over. And then that delight, the uh, loaded flower is opening up. As it opens up even further, get these beautiful, what I call nimitas, the light, well actually the Buddha call nimitas, these beautiful lights in the mind. Just like when you die, you go towards the light. This is the same thing. The light is happening. The five senses have been subdued. This is the mind getting all the energy and getting brighter and brighter. And even that, you have a wonderful time when you see limiters. Beautiful lights in the mind. Wow. Energizes you all day. And then you enter that limiter. It either embraces you or just go into it. You will come across fear. Now, the only reason there's fear there because some of you are going to places you've never been before. It's also when you go into that limit, it's like you disappear. Your sense of self and what you can do. You go into real automatic pilot. And for many people that's very scary. You can't control this. But it's very, very beautiful. And then you go into things like the first jhana. The lotus flower is really opening up now. And those petals in the middle just so exquisite, so delightful, more beautiful than you've ever experienced in your life. <laughs> and this is just what happens. And anyway, that's as far as I want to go with this. 
but also just to let you know that those jhanas are in each one of you. It's a beautiful simile because it gives you confidence. The jhanas are in you right now. Your job is just to open up all these petals, covering them, layer by little, layer. As you get closer and closer, those petals become more beautiful and more profound. And the only way to open them up is just want to be here. Mindfulness and kindness. That's what opens the light, the, uh, the lotus flower. And you find, yeah, you already have jhana. It's all covered up. And this is what you need to do. Uncover it. Just like that tattooed guy. I never expected him to do anything like that. You don't expect yourself to... How many, how many times have you been coming to this retreat, Eileen? Has it happened yet? Oh, look, now I'm being a, a, a retreat manager. There's no chance. But sometimes that's what you think. And then sometimes you're just sitting there and everything sort of you know, comes as it should be. You just start letting go. You're watching, kind, relaxed. And as you get closer and closer, you see the present moment and the silence, delightful breath, just the delight, beautiful nimittas. When they do come, Again, remember, all you need to do is, all you have, can do, be kind and be aware. The kindfulness. The lotus will continue to open as long as the sun is shining warmth and light on the lotus flower. You do that all the way. So simple instructions. But today I taught about the signposts, the landmarks on the way. Sooner or later, you, each one of you will experience, those nimittas especially. If not on this retreat, when you die, when you see the light, now you know what it is. Just be mindful and kind towards that light and you go right into it. It's going to happen. Be prepared. Okay. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Excellent. <laughs> so thank you for listening. We do now have the interview.